Now let us read from the Old Testament scriptures, just reading the, a, a section, the first section from the long psalm, Psalm 119, the psalm on the word of God, first eight verses of it. Another blessing, more blessings, as we were thinking about this morning, from the first book of Psalms, and here are more blessings from the Lord. Psalm 119, verse 1, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Now, in the New Testament scriptures, let me ask you to turn to John's Gospel and there, chapter 14. Chapter that begins with, I am the way, the truth, and the life, early on in the verses here, and this is among the the precious words of Jesus. They're all precious words, of course, but uh, perhaps particularly so in John 14, beginning to read at verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, He it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. 
You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, as we give thanks for these precious words of Jesus himself, we remember what that rise, let us go, meant, what it signified, and what would happen in the coming days when he, the altogether righteous one, would offer up his life as an atonement for sin. And Lord, we give thanks to you for that love that drew salvation's plan, the grace that brought it down to man, and the mighty gulf that you did span at Calvary. Mercy there was great, and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me, there my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. Thanks and praise be to you, O Lord, for that great event and for his great victory, his great cry, it is finished, and then his wonderful, powerful resurrection from the dead to be the living Savior of his people and the Lord of his church. And Lord, as we are part of that earthly church now, we come to you with our thanks and praise for all that we share and experience within the fellowship of your church. As a congregation, as part of the wider denomination, as part of the worldwide fellowship of all those who trust in the same Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray for your blessing on the church in these days in which we live, when we find it Difficult in many ways to witness for you, to know the ways that we can reach out into the world. Bless our endeavors, Lord. Bless our every effort to live as your witnesses. And we pray that you would guide and bless this and every congregation in seeking to share the good news of the gospel with others around. And as we prayed already, Lord, we pray for mercy on our country in these strange times in which we live today. And we think of our world in which there are so many uh, troubles, so many people suffering in one way or another. A world in which people misunderstand one another, are suspicious of one another, sometimes hate one another. Lord, how we pray that there may be more love in the world, and that as your church there may be love not only shared among us, but reaching out into the world around us. May our waking and working and eating and relaxing and sleeping and everything be lit up by your love, our homes reflecting it, our places of work inspired by it, and our relationships enriched by it. We pray for people in need, Lord, to those losing heart, Grant encouragement and patience for people who are ill or damaged in any way, 
that we pray for in our own hearts, Lord. We pray for healing and peace and for the dying and the bereaved faith and hope, hope that is like an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast. And Lord, we think of the, the younger generation, for children, for children being born and brought up in this world today, and how we long for the world they enter to be a welcoming and secure place for them. But Lord, we know that there are many influences that are not healthy or happy or godly upon the lives of many uh, children and young people today. We pray against all of that, and we pray for your grace that there may be more opportunities through church, through other groups like Scripture Union and other organizations to share the good news with the young. We also pray for those who have any kind of chronic illness or are in constant pain as we long for, uh, pray for, release and relief for them. For the elderly and all who are coming to the end of their days in this world, as we long that more people should know the good news of that eternal life that you offer through the gospel of Christ, in whom there are joys forever at your right hand. Lord, we've been thinking about your word in reading and in, in, in song. We thank you indeed for all, for books and literature and for the ability to read and all that is opened up to us thereby, that we can read magazines, even recipes, instructions, most of all that we can read your word in the scriptures, which we call light, and we pray for its light to be spread, which we call the sword of the Spirit, and pray that it may cut through all that opposes your way and your will. We call it the milk of your word, as we pray that people will find there your salvation. And we call it the solid meat, as we pray that your church may grow by it. We think of the many children and adults who cannot read or write. Help those, Lord, who build schools in other places, underdeveloped places perhaps, who seek books and equipment to help them. And we thank you for the selfless service of so many in this world who are not motivated by profit and the desire to be rich, but who place their energy and their intellect at the service of their fellow human beings, and especially those who serve with organizations that we may know something of in the Bible Society or Wycliffe Bible Translators and so many other organizations that are seeking to get the message of your word to the many people, many people still in this world who don't have the opportunity to read it for themselves. And Lord, we pray for the extension of your kingdom, for the equipping of your church, for the enabling of your people to be salt and light in the world, even in the worlds of industry and commerce, entertainment and politics, everywhere, that the light of Christ may shine in a dark world. Father, hear our prayers as we intercede for others and all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. 
This evening, from the New Testament Scriptures, in that passage in John 14, I'd like to lead your thoughts along the line of three gifts from our Saviour. I suppose it's not so long since we were talking about the gift, three gifts given to the Saviour, you know, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but these gifts, costly gifts as they were, are nothing compared to the gifts of the Saviour, as we find in what I take as our text, John 14, verses 26 and 27, where it says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. And then verse 27 says, Let not your hearts be troubled. The disciples to whom these words were first addressed, well, their hearts might well have been troubled. They'd heard his solemn words several times over about the terrible things that lay ahead. And even if often they couldn't really understand what he was saying, what he was going on about, momentous things lay ahead. And if people if people were out to get their master, well, what future was there for them? And no doubt there are many things that can bring anxiety into our lives. Could be anxiety about some matter of health, anxiety about somebody who's getting into wrong ways, could be anxiety about debt, could be anxiety about the future of the church in an age that seems to be rushing headlong into godlessness and decadence, could be anxiety about the ultimate fact of our own mortality, could be anxiety about the future of the the whole planet in relation to all these things that we hear nowadays about climate change and so on, all sorts of things that could cause anxiety. And here we have Jesus saying to us, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Not to mean head in the sands sort of thing about particular issues that may affect us, but faith held out as the answer to anxiety. It's how the chapter started. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And actually the NIV uses the word trust. That's what it's about, trust in a Lord who, as we believe, has the whole world in his hands. Trust in one who knows what he's doing. Trust in one who is working his purposes out, even when we can't see it in the meantime. And here, in these two verses, 26 and 27, here are three wonderful promises from the Savior. It's the eve of his crucifixion, but he focuses their minds on the gifts that he's giving them, what he's going to leave them. Not, not leave in the sense of his last will and testament, before he goes away forever. And the whole thing is, of course, that he prophesied not only his death, but his resurrection as well. But three gifts. Here they are, the Holy Spirit, the written word, his inner peace. These are the gifts that he speaks about. Gifts for Peter and James and the others then, and gifts for us now. First, his Holy Spirit. In verse 25, he refers to the teaching he'd been giving them, all along perhaps, but especially in this upper room discourse. 
These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. With you in the flesh. Implying, of course, that he wasn't going to be with them very much longer in that way. But, looking to the future, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things. And, of course, we know the story, don't we, of Acts chapter 2, about the day of Pentecost, when there's the sound of the rushing mighty wind, and then the appearance of the tongues of fire, resting on the heads of the apostles, and they were miraculously enabled to speak in languages that they had never learned, so that people of all nationalities were able to hear the good news, good news of what Christ had accomplished by his death and resurrection. The message proclaimed all over the Bible, proclaimed perhaps especially in Romans, about God as both just and the justifier, the perfect sacrifice of atonement so that people may be justified through grace, not as a reward for good deeds, but as a gift to be received in in humble and yet far-reaching faith. And that that outpouring on on the day of Pentecost was the fulfillment of this promise in words often used by Matthew. I don't know if you've... uh, seen that before. Actually, the scholar F.F. Bruce wrote a book with this title, This Is That. And you know, based on the many passages in Matthew especially, where he would say, this is that which was prophesied by whoever. And uh, here, this is that which was prophesied indeed, the promise of his Holy Spirit. He even talks about how they should rejoice in verse 28 that he is going to the Father Backed up over in the next, well, in chapter 16, verse 7, when he said, It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And the commentator William Hendrickson comments on that. Instead of becoming poorer, the disciples are actually going to become richer. To be sure, one Helper is leaving but he leaves with the purpose of sending another. And this second helper, moreover, having once arrived, meaning at Pentecost, will never depart from the church. Now that's talking about the true church. Of course, it is possible for a a so-called church to depart far from the Lord, indeed to depart so far that its lampstand is removed. But here is the promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit to all who truly trust in Christ. The Father will send the Helper in my name. And again, just by the way, um, there's one answer to those who sometimes allege that the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, is not in the Bible because there it is in, in in a perfect miniature of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. And let me draw attention to the three expressions that are used in this chapter to describe the Holy Spirit. The first, the helper. That's the word in our text and in verse 16 as well. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. There's a hymn that, uh, that, that says by way of sort of invocation, Come Holy Spirit, come, let thy bright beams arise 
dispel the darkness from our minds and open all our eyes. Cheer our desponding hearts, thou heavenly paraclete. Now that is the very word that is used, the very Greek word, parakletos it is, which means literally uh, someone alongside called, someone called alongside. And as we know, it was, it was often used for, for an advocate. You're, you're charged with some offense and you need someone, someone skilled in the law to come and stand alongside you to present your case. You get the same word in 1 John 2 and 1, used there of Jesus, because John writes, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. That's how the ESV and the AV indeed translate it, an advocate with the Father. The NIV draws out the meaning in its phrase, or slightly paraphrase really, one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And the next verse there goes on, he is the atoning sacrifice or the propitiation for our sins. His defense of us, this advocate that we call alongside, his defense of us is not to say that we really aren't so bad when everything is taken into account. His advocacy is not to make excuses for us, but rather he says, this one's sins have been dealt with. But here in John 14, Jesus uses this very word to describe the Holy Spirit whom the Father would send in his name. One called alongside to help. And where the Son, you might say, comes as our Redeemer in salvation or justification, the Spirit comes alongside as our paraclete in what we sometimes call, in the long word, sanctification. The task of making us holy, making us more like Jesus, bringing forth more of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Now, that, uh, the, the second phrase that's used is actually the, the description of verse 26, the Holy Spirit. And the term, that's the term that we normally use for the third person of the Trinity. But it's not just a title. It's also a description. He is the Spirit, the Holy One. And that points to these two things, that he is holy in himself and that his ministry, his, his task is to make his people holy to make us more like the Lord himself. What do we see in Jesus? Perfect love. And of course, we know it from Galatians, don't we? The fruit of the Spirit is love in the hearts of his people. What do we see in Jesus? Perfect joy. And joy is the fruit of the Spirit. What do we see in him? Peace. What we're learning about in this text just now. What do we see in him? Patience. Another part of the fruit of the Spirit in the lives of his people. And so we could go on with the other things that are listed there. Kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. These are all marks of the holiness which the Holy Spirit wants to work into the lives of his people. In the words of the poet Longfellow, Holy Spirit, truth divine, glow Within this heart of mine, kindle every high desire, perish self 
in thy pure fire. And I suppose that's the question. Is that what you and I, is that what we want? That every high desire, every desire for that which is good and loving and Christ-like may be kindled in our hearts and lives and the other things rooted out and that the fire of the Spirit would consume our selfishness and self-centeredness. We know how in recent times there has been a tendency to emphasize what are sometimes called the spectacular in terms of the gifts of the Spirit, some at least of which were intended for the days of the early church before we had the, the written word in our hands. But the main thing is that he is the Holy Spirit, holy in himself, making his people holy. He is the helper, he is the Holy Spirit, And then the other thing, thirdly, in the way that he's described here in the words of Jesus, the spirit of truth. Verse 17, another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. And of course, that's a needed emphasis today, because especially nowadays, there's this common view that if religion turns you on, to put it crudely, then that's okay for you, but just don't push it unto others. But the main thing that we have to be concerned with is Christianity true. That's what matters. It's not a matter of what brings us comfort and strength and so on, but are the truth claims of Christianity well-founded? In fact, we might put it this way, if not, if the claims of Christianity are not true, then whether it brings us comfort and peace and all these other things is really of no consequence. Whereas on the other hand, if it is true, then even if it didn't bring us comfort and peace and so on, then we should adhere to it. We know in some ways, Christian discipleship is a hard path. We're not offered some nice religion that simply consists in encouraging people to be nice in a nice world. There are some forms of teaching that do tend in that direction, a sort of find-yourself kind of thing that has been summarized as God is nice and you are nice and just, well, it's nice to be nice. But the social and personal benefits of Christianity are are irrelevant if the truth claims of Christianity are ill-founded. And the Holy Spirit promised in this text is the spirit of truth. Again, meaning not only the true spirit, but the spirit who, who leads his people into the truth. Again, if you glance over to chapter 16 and verse 12 there, Jesus said, I have still many things to say to you, but you cannot hear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. And actually, that leads us on to the second gift of the Savior that's mentioned in the text. First, his Holy Spirit. Secondly, his written word. Because that's what verse 26 refers to. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. There are plenty of passages in the gospel accounts where we find Jesus 
putting his seal of authority on the Old Testament scriptures as God's written word. Here we find him making provision for the writing down of the New Testament scriptures. Much that Jesus said to his disciples seemed to be mysterious to them. They often couldn't grasp it at the time. But after the resurrection, and as the Holy Spirit guided them into the truth, well, everything must have taken on a new meaning, a new significance. And we can maybe imagine them often saying to one another, of course, that's what he meant. We, just ne- we never understood it at the time. And here in the text was Jesus clearly saying, the Holy Spirit would teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And he repeats it in, in chapter 15, verse 26, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And how wonderful that that promise was kept, that the Spirit did bring to their minds the things that Jesus had said and done, so that it's written down for us and for our instruction. What the Apostle Peter said about the prophets of old, as we read in that passage in Second Peter uh, this morning, is true of, of the writers of the New Testament. It's in Second Peter 1 and 20. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So that what we have in our hands is not just a, a collection of, a sort of random collection of thoughts of some Galilean fishermen and, and others. What we have is a collection of the Spirit-inspired memories of those who were themselves eyewitnesses, as, as Peter uh, emphasized in that passage, eyewitnesses of the things that happened, and you might even say ear witnesses as well of what they heard from the mouth of the Master. And that's why this, this book, the, the Bible, is so important, and it's such a wonderful gift that Jesus has given to us, his Holy Spirit first and his written word. So it is James Packer, a well-known theologian who died a short time ago, in a book called Under God's Word, there it is, which is a very significant title that he chose for that book because that's what it's about. We're not to stand over the Bible, but to stand under God's Word. He wrote, The church serves its master best by keeping the Bible not in, a store, in the store on a shelf as a relic of the past, but in use in each congregation as the ever-relevant handbook of authentic discipleship, received in effect from the Master himself. So any congregation in which Bibles are not in the worshippers' hands at services, nor is Bible teaching the focus of attention in sermons, nor is Bible study a main activity, has caused to be ashamed of the poor quality of its discipleship. Actually, it's James Packer in another place who suggests an interesting uh, uh, illustration, really, a good picture of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which when I was a uh, minister in the northeast in the, in the town of Macduff, we used to emphasize a lot because there 
the church was set up on a hill and many years ago we had floodlights installed which uh, illuminate the church beautifully uh, at night. And uh, the, his point would be when you, when you go up to there, these floodlights, they're, they're wonderful, but you're not meant to go up and examine the floodlights and say, isn't that a beautiful piece of construction? And how, how wonderful? What about all the filament? Where does the power come from? We're not meant to examine the actual floodlights, but to examine the thing which the floodlights illumine. And that was his simple illustration, really. The ministry of the Holy Spirit, according to the Word of God, is to focus attention on Jesus Christ. That's not to downplay the Holy Spirit by any means, of course, but it's in Jesus Christ, the light of the world, the Savior of all who put their trust in him. That's where the, the, the work of the Spirit directs our attention. In fact, we can say, as I've summarized it often, we are most spirit-led when we are most Christ-centered. Most spirit-led when we are most Christ-centered. Now, let me illustrate that. Uh, I, I, I was thinking before, I can't remember if I used this uh, illustration before, because I may have done. Uh, you know, when you preach in different uh, churches, uh, as, a, as I kind of bring on the substitutes, as I was putting earlier on today, um, sometimes you forget what you've said wherever but uh, it's a, a very interesting example from the, the terrible Jonestown massacre if you remember some will remember that very much in the news the People's Temple cult led by a man called Jim Jones the Reverend Jim Jones who led many of his followers to their to headquarters place in Guyana and there was a film made about it, and the film portrayed Jones as somebody who started off as a, an apparently evangelical and biblical preacher. But in the film, there's one uh, particular scene where he's seen preaching to the congregation, and he asks the rhetorical question, a series of rhetorical questions. He says, do we trust in such and such? And the congregation will shout, no. And do we trust in, and, and again they shout, no. And, and eventually he comes to the point of saying, and do we trust in this book? And they all shout out, yes. And he says, no, no. No, we don't. We don't trust in the book. We trust in the Lord. And then the film actually shows him literally putting his Bible aside. And that really was the start of everything that followed after that, uh, the, the terrible disaster that happened when how many was it? 918 people committed suicide, mass suicide, absolute tragedy. And there's where it started. Now, of course, we would say we don't worship a book, but it's when we ignore or set aside or turn away from this book that the way is opened up to all manner of deception and falsehood. And everything about that tragedy that happened then could be traced back, really, to the laying aside of the Bible. And God would surely say to us today, beware of anyone who would have you ignore or go against this book. And when we take verse 26 to ourselves... Here's Jesus promising the gift of the Holy Spirit who will teach us 
all the things and, and, and all things and remind us of all that I have said to you. The Spirit breathes upon the Word and brings the truth to sight. It's there for us to store up in our hearts and minds. Again, there was a, a story of an American intelligence gathering ship, the USS Pueblo, that was captured some years ago in North Korea. The crew members were imprisoned, and during their captivity, the men of the Pueblo, who weren't allowed to have Bibles, put together a Bible from their memory. Each one, you know, they would, they would recall what verses they could remember, and they wrote them down on bits and pieces of paper. And there's the challenge. If we were locked up together now, without any Bibles here, how much of a Bible could we produce? You know, if we just contribute the bits that are stored up in our memory, or indeed uh, individually, you could say, how thick would your Bible be? It's a challenging question, isn't it? Because we're challenged there to store up God's word in our hearts. That's what the long psalm says. Store up God's word in your heart. But it's time that I went on to the last thing we've thought of these two, two of these great gifts of the Savior, his Holy Spirit, his written word, and then thirdly, his inner peace. That's verse 27 again. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And in fact, he says, not as the world gives do I give to you. Peace, shalom, was, it is, the common greeting in that part of the world. Often, I suppose, just as a kind of formal greeting, in the same way that uh, people in, in our culture often say goodbye to one another without any realization that goodbye is actually a contraction originally of God be with you. But they just it's just a word that they throw off. But here's Jesus' promise, my peace. William Hendrickson, whom I quoted earlier, makes the interesting point in, in comparing Christianity with what was known as Epicureanism. You remember how Paul met some of them in Athens. And their ideal was a state of detachment from the world, which Hendrickson sums up as, don't worry, for the gods, if they exist at all, don't take any notice of you. That was supposed to be their, their peace, their comfort. Whereas, he points out, Christianity says precisely the opposite. Don't worry, because the God that you trust does take notice of you. He knows all about you and he cares for you. That's the text that I was preaching on last Sunday evening, a bit further down the road in Larbert, that wonderful verse in First Peter 5, where in words of one syllable it just says, he cares for you. Cast all your anxieties or all your cares upon him because he cares for you. So Christ's peace is a very different peace from that kind of Epicurean or any other kind of peace that the world gives. And it's a peace that can be real even in the eye of the storm. Because his promise is not to take his people out of the world, but to give them peace in the world. And, now in, and as we've said earlier, in point of fact, it was very shortly after he uttered these words about giving them peace 
that there would be all the commotion, all the noise of that party from the authorities led by Judas Iscariot, the clamor of the crowds and and, and the, the tramping of the soldiers and all the turmoil that led to Calvary. And how could he speak about peace in face of all that he knew was about to happen? Because, of course, the peace that he's talking about has nothing to do with outward circumstances at all. On the one hand, people could have a life of absolute ease and comfort, lacking nothing in, in, in material uh, senses, and yet lack the true inner peace that Jesus gives. On the other hand, people could live a life of turmoil in which there never seems to be a moment free of trouble, and yet experience the the, uh, and the, the peace of Christ that he promises here. Peace that, as, as the apostle would tell us, uh, surpasses human understanding. We, we can't actually suss it out how it works, but a peace that he gives. Or even a tragedy such as that that befell the, the now famous Horatio Spafford, that uh, lawyer, you know the hymn, I'm sure, that lawyer who lost most of his investments, first of all, in the great fire of Chicago, and then in that tragedy at sea, lost four, his four daughters, and later than that even, lost a three-year-old son to scarlet fever. But that's the Spafford who wrote, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot... You have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. So Jesus says, peace I leave with you. Here's another wonderful gift from the Savior. Do you remember Romans 5 and 1, where Paul encapsulates so much of the gospel message, really, when he wrote, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in that chapter it goes on to say, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. Three wonderful gifts. And let me as I begin to draw toward a close, let me close by telling you about Marge. Marge was on a plane from, well, I don't know where it was from, actually. It was a, a plane in the States bound for Cleveland. And as she settled down, she noticed that if she looked out through the window on one side of the plane, she saw a beautiful sunset. But if she looked out of the window in the other direction, all she could see was a cloudy sky that was dark and threatening. And Marge wrote it down later. She testified it was as if a voice said to her, your life will contain some happy, beautiful times, but also some dark shadows. Here's the lesson this voice seemed to say to her. Here's the lesson I want to teach you to save you much heartache and help you to know my peace and joy. You see... It doesn't matter which window you look through, this plane is still going to Cleveland. So it is in your life. 
You have a choice. You can dwell on the gloomy picture or you can focus on the bright things and leave the dark, ominous situations to me. I alone can handle them anyway. The final destination is not influenced by what you see or feel along the way. Learn this, act on it, and you will be able to experience the peace that passes understanding. That's a, it's, a, it's an interesting little story, isn't it? Whichever window you look out of, this plane is still going to Cleveland. Simple picture, and I don't know for you which side of the plane you're looking out of right now, whether you see the glorious colours of a beautiful sky or dark clouds, but the plane is still, as, as that old song says about the gospel train, bound for glory. And Jesus says to us in these last words of verse 27, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. That's not to shut our eyes to the real problems in this world, the many wrongs that need righting, the fact that this world is so far from being what it should be, and the realization that Christ's call is for everyone to make a difference in the world. But in the midst of everything, he says, my peace I give to you. So three gifts from our Savior, and and these are wonderful gifts, his Holy Spirit, his written word, his inner peace. Thanks be to him. Let us pray. We thank you, Lord, for all the words of Jesus, as he set his seal upon all that was written beforehand in the scriptures of the Old Testament, and as he spoke of inspiring the disciples to write down the things that would become the New Testament, all of it, your word, inspired by you and profitable for us. And we thank you, Lord, for these wonderful promises that Jesus gave in the upper room to these disciples, Peter and Andrew and and all the rest of them, gifts that you promised to us as well. The Holy Spirit, the one who is holy and who wants to make us holy. Your written word and how we thank you that we have that in our hands and his inner peace. And Lord, that you would help us to know whatever side of the plane we're looking out of at any particular time to remember the direction in which it's going. It is going on to glory. And we thank you for that message of peace. For all these gifts of our Savior, we give thanks, O Lord, in his name. Amen.